failed in many opportunities to give an answer for the hope that they have. Lord of love, in your kindness and compassion, take the efforts of your servants in the EU and through them, turn the hearts of many on Sydney Uni campus to Jesus Christ. We ask this for the honour and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My name's Reese. I'm a second year Howie with engineering faculty on campus. I'm going to be praying for our wonderful supporters and graduates, so please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord over all, we give you great thanks for the ways that you have been at work on our campus for a great many years, equipping students for a lifetime of service. We thank you so much for all of your people, both EU graduates and supporters of the vision of the Grads Fund, who give so generously to the work of the Graduates Fund on campus in partnership with the EU. We thank you too for the ways that you are at work through each one of them in their home churches to love and serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. And even more, we thank you for the ways that you are at work in them to enable them to love those who don't yet know you. Father, just as we are seeking to reach the lost on campus, we pray that they too may be reaching the lost in their neighbourhoods, in their workplaces, and wherever they may go. Father, we pray, please, that you may be growing your kingdom through the proclamation of Jesus made by the graduates of the EU and the supporters of the Graduates Fund for your eternal honour and glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Let me extend my welcome to the supporters and graduates who've joined us tonight. We're so glad to have you here with us. It really is a privilege to partner together with you in the EU ministry at Sydney Uni. Your prayers, your financial generosity, your personal support makes possible the partnership we enjoy as students and staff at Sydney Uni. And for your partnership in that work, we give great thanks to God. A supporters' night is always a special night here at Annual Conference because it's one of the very few moments in the year where we can actually physically gather together as students, staff and supporters all here at once. So thank you for making the journey up to Maru tonight we trust and pray that tonight will be encouraging for you in your support of the EU ministry, but also in your personal walk with the Lord Jesus. The good news for you is that tonight's talk is a lot shorter than last night's. <laughs> and I mean a lot shorter. In fact, I've postponed part B of tonight's talk to tomorrow night. So we're only going to look at part A. That's meant to be good news. So all week, we've just been looking at what it means to be a human being according to the Christian scriptures. And we've been doing it by thinking about our relationships. So we started with the claim that it's our relationship with the one true living God in Jesus Christ that is f the fundamental and most important truth about you. And last night we explored some of the implications of that, of what it means to be made in God's image for human dignity, including sexuality and gender and euthanasia, suffering, abortion, many topics. So what we're doing tonight is expanding our circle of relationships, moving out from our relationship with God in Christ, now to think about our relationship with our family. 
So I want you just to think for a moment about your earthly family. You might like to close your eyes, actually, just to sort of think about your family for a moment. Think about your parents. Think about your siblings. Think about your children. Some of us here have them. Think about your children. Think about your grandparents. What about your aunts and your uncles? What about your cousins? Okay, so as you've thought about all those different people in your family, all those different relationships, I wonder what emotions you had as you thought about them. Maybe it was joy and affection. Maybe it was hurt and anger. Maybe there was sadness and grief for you as you thought about a particular member of your family. Or maybe there was actually some shame and embarrassment. Maybe you long for something better, something more substantial. Or maybe there's a warmth and stability in your family that just makes you thankful and glad. Maybe actually it's a bit of everything. I think that's probably the case for most of us. Uh, for years, the screensaver on my laptop used to just cycle through various photos I had of Jenny and our five kids. And whenever I'm sitting there working away, then the screensaver would come on and cycle through these photos. I turn and look at it, and every single time, and I mean that, every single time, without fail, I'd look at those photos as they just come up, and I would just feel this rush of affection just sort of well up inside me, just towards these pictures of my family. I mean, I love these people. They're my family. But somehow when I get home in the afternoon, <laughs> and you already know where this story's going, right? <laughs> face to face, that same rush of affection would just go AWOL. And I get frustrated or angry or grumpy. And you know the experience, right? Even in just that small way, I think we all know the potential and the power and, yes, the pain of families. So how should we think about our family from God's perspective? And not just how should we think about family, how should we live with our family? What would God have us do in our family? That's what we're going to explore tonight. So the outline is there on page 37 of your booklet, and hopefully if you're visiting with us, you've been given an outline to follow along with. Well, as we've been doing all week, we're going to trace this idea of family through the Bible using a framework we've been using all week of creation, sin, the nation of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then glorious new creation. So we're going to trace that through and see what God's Word reveals about family. So we start with creation, and it might be stating the obvious, but frankly, sometimes the obvious is worth reflecting on. We're all born in families. We're back once again to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. You can see there on your page. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it. I mean, God could have created new human beings any way he wanted to. He could have had us just pop up the ground like turnips. I mean, <laughs> do turnips grow out of the ground? They do grow out of the ground, right? I got that right? Yeah, anyway, he could have just made us, or he could have made us drop out of the sky, or he could have made it such that we're delivered by stork, right? After all, 
how did God make Adam and Eve in Genesis 2? I mean, he made Adam out of the dust of the ground and he made Eve out of part of Adam's side. So he could have made it such that every time you cut your fingernails, new humans grew. I mean, that would have been an interesting coming together of both the manicure and the midwifery industries at that point. But in his wisdom, instead, God creates new humans through male and female coming together in sex. That's how we fulfill God's command to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. Now, if we just had Genesis 1, you could think, okay, we'll follow that command. Let's just have sex with as many people as you like from the opposite sex, make lots and lots of babies, and we can tick off that command. Done. But Genesis 2 makes it very clear that actually that's not what God has in mind. God's intention is that male-female marriage is the framework in which we seek to be fruitful and increase in number. You can see this in Genesis 2. The issue in Genesis 2 is that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Why? Because he can't fulfill God's intention for him, which includes being fruitful and multiplying. So God makes Eve out of Adam's side, brings her to him, and then we read in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, printed there on your page, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then the author makes an important comment, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, just notice there, the man and the woman becoming one flesh is in the context of the man leaving his mother and father. That is, this is not just about sex. This is about family relationships. A new primary family relationship of man and woman as husband and wife is being created, distinct and separate, from the parent-child relationship that the man had, and obviously the woman had, normally. And this new relationship of husband and wife displaces the the previous parent-child relationship as the primary one. And that's the context in which procreation is to occur. So what this story is giving us is not just God's intended context for making babies, it's showing us that male-female marriage is God's intended means of creating new families, new sets of relationships, not just for the making of babies. He leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. I think we see this reflected around us in the strong desire that people often have for connection with their birth parents. Maybe it was an adoption or long-term fostering. Maybe they were conceived with the help of a sperm or egg donor. But there's often a desire to reach out and connect in some way with your biological family. Not necessarily to displace the parent who raised you, But there can still be a desire sometimes to connect. I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that God set things up so that we're born into a set of biological relationships, a biological family, even if it doesn't always work out that way. Well, what can we say about families that don't fit this neat marriage and biology fitting together picture? What what about single parents? you know, widows or widowers or those whose spouses have deserted them? What do we say about same-sex couples? What about married couples that adopt or foster children of other biological parents? What do we say about those types of families? There's quite a few important things to say, actually. The first thing to get absolutely clear is that just because I'm not the biological parent 
that does not mean that I will necessarily and automatically be a bad parent. To think that is actually just ridiculous. Of course, under God's common grace, all parents are capable of loving the children in their care. They're capable of it, doesn't mean they always do it. But to think that just because I'm not their biological parent, I somehow can't be a good parent, that's ridiculous. That's just as ridiculous as thinking that a male-female marriage always guarantees good parenting. There's plenty of evidence that says there's sometimes destructive parenting in traditional male-female marriages. Second thing to say is that what we can say about these situations is that God's original and good plan is that children would be raised by their biological parents. That's his original and good plan. So we can recognise that the having of children or the raising of children in these other situations, however it's come about, it's not as God originally intended in God's good plan. But we need to be really careful when we say that. See, sometimes these situations are thrust upon us and we have no choice. Because you had no choice in the family into which you were born, did you? You had no choice in the family in which you grew up. You have no choice if your spouse leaves you or if your spouse dies. And, and you end up having to continue on as a single parent. We have to keep remembering in all these situations that whatever the situation, God is faithful and good and sovereign and He will fulfil His good purposes and enable us to persevere even in less than ideal circumstances. Sometimes our family situation might arise out of a good retrieval of a broken situation. I think of many of my friends who grew up with adoptive parents or who've fostered and adopted children who needed parents who could look after them or those who've grown up in a blended family with step-parents and half-brothers and half-sisters. All of these situations require real care and wisdom in working out what will honour God here and what will love people best. And then in addition to those situations, you've also got situations sometimes of our own making, not of situations that are thrust upon us, not in situations where we're trying to retrieve a broken situation, but maybe situations where we've acted in a foolish way, in the way we've built a family. Maybe we've disregarded God's designs for sex and we've fathered or given birth to a child outside of marriage. Or maybe we've thought that we actually we know better than God and we've disregarded his good intention for families as founded on male-female marriage and we've sought to build a family or raise kids on a same-sex relationship. Well, I think the response that Jesus would have us make to these situations is as Christians who are caught in those situations, an acknowledgement of our sin embracing of his forgiveness and then moving forward in repentance and genuine love and concern for all the people involved. And that last bit can be quite tricky to work out. How do you love the children and the adults involved in some of those situations that we may have brought upon ourselves? Because as Christians, our commitment is to honour God in our relationships and we do that in part by making sure we carefully consider the relational needs of all those affected by the decisions we've made. Well, this brings me to the second heading there on your page, the sad effects of sin in our families. Sin corrupts, sin degrades and sin even destroys family relationships. There are numerous examples of this in the Bible. It starts in Genesis 3.16 with the breakdown of what should have been a selfless relationship of love between Adam and Eve. Eve is told by God 
that as a result of their sin, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, which is a description actually of the conflict and tension that will now corrupt the marriage relationship. You can see this because the same language of desire and rule is then used in Genesis 4 in a different situation, but it shows you what the words mean. In Genesis 4, Cain is told by God, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is to have you, like to control you, but you must rule over it, you must subdue it. And so when Eve is told, your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you, it's the language of conflict and control. That's the effect of sin in our marriages. And as you read through the rest of Genesis, sin's corruption of the family relationships is given pretty graphic description. As you can see there from the list on your page, I mean, if they made a Netflix series of Genesis family relationships, don't watch it, they'd be bad. <laughs> I mean, it starts there with Cain murdering his brother, Abel, in Genesis 4. And after that, we have a terrible catalogue of sin's effects in families that I've written down there for There's sibling rivalry, there's adultery, there's lying, jealousy incest, favouritism, even slave trading within the family context. Now, I hope your experience of family life is not as extreme as some of those, but the corrupting and destructive effects of sin in family life, that's confirmed for each of us in our own experience. Isn't that the case? We know of sin's destructive impact in family relationships. I mean, I hope you haven't sold your brother off to slave traders, as uh, Joseph's brothers did, but I can guarantee you that if you have a sibling, that there have been moments, I'm sure there have been moments, where your sibling was mean to you. I'm sure you wouldn't have been mean back. <laughs> I mean, I hope, not, I hope you haven't been like Abraham, as he did with his wife Sarah, he tried to pass his wife Sarah off as single and available for someone else to marry so that he could save his own skin. I mean, I hope you don't treat your spouse like that. But I do guarantee that if you're married or one day you are married, I guarantee that never a week will go by without self-centeredness or impatience or some other manifestation of sin raising its ugly head in your relationship. Not a single week. See, sin affects all our family relationships. With our parents, with our children, with our spouse, with our wider family. Which is why, in the Old Testament, God legislated against sin to protect families. This is what he did in Old Testament Israel. Over the page, in page 38... The good news is that there are lots of examples in the Bible that show God cares about injustice and wrong when it's done in a family setting. He cares about it. And you see this right back in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain murders his brother Abel, God does not stand back indifferent to what Cain has done. Look at Genesis 4 verse 10. The Lord said to Cain, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God knows what Cain has done and it matters dearly to him. God cares when sin wreaks havoc and destruction in our families. He doesn't stand idly by because he's the God of justice. And so in the next verses, God brings a punishment on Cain for what he's done. And you can see some other examples listed there on your page where God shows he cares about injustice within families. Now that's good news. For every single one of us who've ever been wronged in our family, 
whether it was through abuse or neglect or favoritism or desertion or emotional or physical violence, whether you were defrauded by a family member or belittled by them or shown a lack of love or cut off relationally, whatever the terrible situation in which you find yourself in your family, know first that God knows. He sees it. He hears and he cares. And in no way does he think this is good, what's happened. Second, know that he has set a day when he will call everyone to account for what they have done, whether good or ill, and when those who are doing wrong in your family, they will appear before the Lord Jesus Christ as judge of all. There will be no secrets unexposed. There will be no wrong unpunished. Finally, on that day, there will be perfect justice. Third, in the meantime, know that God does not expect you to stay in a dangerous situation. If you're being abused or suffering emotional, physical violence, know that God's intention is that you ought to be safe in your family. If you're not safe, then you need to leave until it is genuinely and securely safe for you to return. I believe that is wisdom under God. And God's people ought to help and support you if you need to leave your family for safety. So make sure you reach out to God's people if you are in that situation. Or one day you find yourself in that situation. Though I, I sincerely pray that the Lord might preserve all of us from that terrible day. So know that God cares about injustice and wrongs in your family. But God also shows that he cares about the effects of sin in families by giving all sorts of laws in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel to protect families from the effects of sin. So three of the Ten Commandments are directly aimed at protecting families from the destructive effects of sin. The fifth commandment there on your page, to honour your father and your mother. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, which protects the marriage relationship. And the tenth commandment, which includes, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or husband, for that matter. The tenth commandment reflects the fact that sin can take root in our heart and corrupt our focus, even within marriage. And instead of contentment with the husband or wife the Lord has given you, instead of contentment, there is now envy of another. And instead of delighting in the spouse that the Lord has given you, there is now lust for another. And that's, friends, that's just another way to damage your marriage. Hence the Lord says, no coveting someone else's wife or husband that helps protect your family. And you can find lots of other Old Testament laws that God gave to protect families from the very sorts of sin that I listed earlier in Genesis. And I've listed some of them down there on your page to chase up later. So God's intent interaction with Israel, it shows the concern and seriousness with which he views sin in family life. But then Jesus walks onto history's stage and he does something scandalous. Jesus redefines true family. I think it's really hard for those of us from a Western individualistic background to appreciate 
just how culturally shocking, even, even how shameful Jesus' pronouncements on family were to his hearers. Now, those of us from an Eastern, an Asian or subcontinental background, you know that family is actually spelt F-A-M-L-Y. Because there's no I when it comes to family. Now, all those who went, that's because you're a Western individualist. <laughs> because all of our brothers and sisters from other cultures are going, too right. <laughs> there's no I when it comes to family. What's more, it's spelt all in capital letters. Because family is top priority. Family loyalty and family commitment are foundational for who you are. If that's you, if you get that, then you'll probably feel some of the shock value of what Jesus says about family, just as his first hearers did. So look at what Mark records for us there in Mark 3, 31 to 35, on the middle of your page. Mark records for us this story. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to Jesus and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And I reckon everyone sitting around them was going, Well, that's a seriously dumb question. We just told you they're outside asking for you right now. Then here's the shocking bit. And looking at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother. Jesus redefines his primary family. It's no longer biological relations that defined family for Jesus. It's now whether you listen to him and do the will of God. That's what defines you as part of Jesus' family. Jesus is saying, my primary family, the family whom I identify with, is no longer the woman who gave me birth or the brothers I mucked around with as a kid. You are now my primary family. That is a scandalous thing to say in any culture or age. But even more scandalous, Jesus expects his disciples to make the same scandalous redefinition. Have a look there on your page at Luke 14, verses 25 and 26. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus calling for? He's calling for your primary allegiance. You want to be his disciple? Then everyone else, including your earthly family, including even yourself, takes second place. He takes the family loyalty that usually will go to your earthly family. Does he really mean you have to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your children? No, he doesn't, actually. He can't tell us to truly hate our earthly family or even hate ourselves when plainly elsewhere he tells us you have to love your neighbor as yourself because your family too count as your neighbor. So you have to love them too. It's hyperbole. He's saying if we want to be his disciple, then he must get top billing in our affection and loyalty. And interestingly, if you do that, if you make him your top loyalty, then 
don't be surprised if others look at you and say, look how you treat Jesus as number one compared to your family. You hate your family. No, you don't hate your family. But you have given your primary allegiance and loyalty to the Lord Jesus as your primary family. Now, what Jesus is doing there is big, and in a moment we'll have to think through the implications, but let's just pause for a moment and think, what's going on in this redefinition of true family? Is Jesus being an innovator here? Is he inventing something new, trying to give us a new definition of family? Turns out, he's not. Rather, Jesus is revealing something that has always been true, but which we often lose sight of, or maybe we never even realised at all. And it's this. Our family relations are actually patterned on God's relationships. Let me take you through this. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, Paul makes this comment on your page, and he's playing on the link in Greek, which was the language he was writing in, between the words father and family. So he says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, the word is pater, from whom every family, patria, in heaven and earth derives its name. Paul is saying more than just, hey, guess what? There's an interesting word play between family and father. You know, they come to... No, he's saying every family derives its name, its identity, its reality from the Father, God the Father. Something about our earthly family relationships takes its lead from or is modelled on God the Father's relationship to his family. Well, hang on, who's in God's family? Well, primarily it's the relationship between God the Father and Jesus, God the Eternal Son incarnate. And that relationship, where God the Father loves God the Son, and God the Son loves God the Father, where God the Father glorifies God the Son, and God the Son glorifies the Father, where God the Father speaks and God the Son obeys, something about that eternal family relationship within God himself is meant to be reflected in our earthly families where we're not just fathers and sons, but we're parents and children. God has created us in families as parents and children in a way that is meant to reflect the divine family of God the Father and God the Son. Now, it's not an exact match by any stretch of the imagination. No parent is omniscient, all-knowing, no parent is omnipresent, you know, present everywhere at once, though we do try by having you on our Find My iPhone app, right? God is God. Your parent is not God. And neither are you, by the way. But there is something about the parent-child relationship into which we are all born that is meant to be a positive reflection of God's Trinitarian relationship as God the Father and God the Son. And it doesn't end there. The relationship of husband and wife also has a basis in God's own relationship, this time between Jesus and the church. So later in Ephesians, this time Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul quotes Genesis 1 when he writes... Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul's just been saying that a husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church, and that a wife must submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. But then he quotes Genesis 1, and he makes clear that he sees human marriage as reflecting the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. 
It's not the other way around. It's not that the relationship between Jesus and the church is a little bit like marriage. No, it's that human marriage is patterned on, modelled on, the relationship between Jesus and the church. That's the true marriage, if you like. Just as the true parent-child relationship is that between God the Father and Jesus the Son. So I think what we get here is profound. Our human family relationships of parent-child and husband-wife are patterned on God's relationships as God the Father with God the Son and Jesus the Son with us, the church. Those are the true and original family relationships. So how does that then relate to Jesus' redefinition of family? Right, well, the link is in the next point on page 39. See, not only are our family relationships patterned on God's relationships, what God does is he adopts us into his family. So right throughout the Bible, there's a theme of God adopting his chosen people into his own family. I've set out six stages of this theme throughout salvation history there on page 39. So let's just trace them through. Point one there, God calls the Old Testament nation of Israel his son in Exodus chapter 4. When the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, the Lord tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, this is what the Lord says, Israel, the nation of Israel, is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Now, at this point in the whole Bible story, it's not entirely clear how the nation of Israel can be God's son. That'll only become clear by the time we get to point five. But it speaks even here of a close, a special closeness of relationship and privilege. It's like family that God establishes with his people. Point two, centuries later, when Israel has a human king, that king is called Son of God. It's a title bestowed on the king by God himself. God speaks to David and makes a promise to him regarding his offspring who would succeed David as king. This is what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. So the king of Israel is going to be called God's son. Point three, when Jesus comes, the promised king from David's line, two times we're told God speaks in an audible voice from heaven, identifying to everyone who was around that Jesus is his son. Happened once at Jesus' baptism and again at the transfiguration. So at the baptism in Luke 3, Luke records, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Which then brings us to point four, which is where we started this whole section with Jesus' radical redefinition of family. Part of his radical teaching was that as disciples, God was not just the father of Jesus, God was their father too. And you see this in the prayer that we now know as the Lord's Prayer, which was the prayer Jesus gave his disciples as a model to follow. You can see the account there on your page from Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name your kingdom come. That is, Jesus' disciples get to share the same relationship with God. God is now their Father that Jesus himself enjoys as the Son. It's no longer national Israel that enjoys the special status as children of God. It's now those who are followers of Jesus that enjoy the privilege of calling God Father. Which brings us then to point five. 
through faith in Jesus, we all receive adoption as sons, in inverted commas. Have a look there at what Paul writes in Galatians 3 and 4, starting at verse 26. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, before we too quickly write off Paul as hopelessly sexist here, remember what he goes on to say in verse 28, which we looked at yesterday. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul's clear that there's no discrimination or prejudice amongst Jesus' followers. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not in background or whether you're male or female, slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So what does he mean by then calling us all sons of God? He means two things. First of all, In the culture of the day, it was the sons who received the inheritance. And Paul's point is that all of us, through Christ, receive the inheritance of everything God has promised. Well, we're all heirs who will inherit because we're in Jesus through faith. So you see this in verse 29 there. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And again, down... In chapter 4, verse 7, at the end of the passage on your page, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So the first reason Paul uses the son language for all of us is because he's picking up on this idea that we are all inheritors. We're all heirs who will inherit what God's promised. But the second reason for using son language is, I think, maybe even more significant. We're all sons, in inverted commas, through faith because we enjoy the relationship, the same relationship that the Son, Jesus, has with the Heavenly Father. So Paul talks about it as us receiving adoption as sons. Jesus is the true Son of God. And we, through faith and union with Jesus, now share his sonship. Though we receive it as adopted children. So look at how Paul explains it there in chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the wonder of the love of God for us, right? It took the death of the Son, Jesus, in our place to secure our adoption as heirs, as sons. And not only that, we now have the Spirit of the Son, Jesus, living in us, the adopted sons. See it there in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here's the true family of God. Jesus, the Son, gives up His life so that we can be adopted into God's family, become heirs through faith who will inherit all of God's promises. But actually, the story of our adoption into God's family doesn't end there. There's point six there's still a final adoption to come. Looking forward to our resurrection from the dead, Paul writes in Romans 8, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. See, the final stage of our adoption is when our transformation into the likeness of the Son, the Lord Jesus, and we receive a resurrection body like His. That's the final moment of our adoption, when we'll be sin-free, resurrected, glorious. That final day of adoption, that final resurrection, that's the end point, the goal of our salvation That's what it's all about. In that hope, we were saved. That's the hope we long for. So what does all this tell us? 
Jesus' redefinition of family is actually not as scandalous as we first thought. Turns out this has always been the plan and purpose of God, to adopt us as his own through faith in his son so that he might be our father and we might be his children, that we might become co-heirs with Jesus the son. That's always been God's intention for us as his creatures. And our membership of his family has always been God's intended fundamental family for you. So when Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother, it shouldn't surprise us. He's just pointing us back to our fundamental family. It's the spiritual family of God through faith in Christ. Well, over the page, on page 40, let's think about some of the implications of this identification of our fundamental family. There is, first, real comfort here for those whose experience of earthly biological family is poor, or maybe much worse than poor. So often our earthly family is less than it ought to be. Sometimes, as we've already spoken about tonight, sometimes they're even downright dreadful and destructive. Now, I know it doesn't take away the awfulness of some of our family situations, but there is comfort here to know that your earthly family, if you are in Jesus, is not your primary fundamental family. If you are in Christ by faith, then you are a child of God. He, the mighty and sovereign God, is your heavenly Father, full of love and compassion and goodness and mercy to you. And Jesus, the Lord of all, He is your brother. And we, by God's grace, your sisters and brothers in Christ, we are your siblings. In Jesus, you are never bereft of family. You're never without a father who loves you or an older brother who's looking out for you or siblings who want to love you. That's meant to be a great provision of God for you. Second, there's a challenge here for those who idolize the earthly family. Jesus is very clear. You cannot be his disciple and relegate him to second place behind your earthly family. Because becoming a Christian means your primary fundamental family is your spiritual family in Jesus. And your first family loyalty is to him not your earthly family. But don't think that means you can just forget about your earthly family. Far from it, actually. Because point three there, commitment to the new family of God drives you back in loving commitment to your earthly or biological family. So you might think, given Jesus' earlier rhetorical question, who are my mother and my brothers, you might think he's saying, I don't care about them anymore. But that's not true. There's an incredibly touching moment as Jesus hangs on the cross close to death where he ensures his earthly mum, Mary, is well looked after. John records it in John 19, 25 to 27. It's there on your page. John says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which is how John refers to himself, standing nearby, <laughs> you, think he's got, you think he's going, yeah, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. 
No, no, no. It's actually, it's actually a title of great humility. Who am I? I am only, I at, at my most fundamental deep reality and identity, I am only a person Jesus loved. He doesn't even name himself. He just says, I'm loved by Jesus. That's enough. Anyway, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, John's talking about himself, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus hanging on the cross there moments from death ensures that Mary is looked after by having John look after her, even at the point of death, where he's dying for the sins of the world. He could say, you know, I've got other things on my mind right now, couldn't he? Dying for the sins of the world, but what does he do at that point? He actively cares for his earthly family. So it's no surprise to find lots of instructions for households in the New Testament. Instructions to wives and husbands and children and parents because a commitment to Christ drives you back in a new commitment to your earthly family. I've listed some images there on your page. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2. I just think it's significant to reflect on the fact that there are so many instructions in the New Testament to Christian households. Because as Christians, we know that our primary fundamental family is the family of God in Christ, but rather than that drag you away from your earthly family, that very commitment to Christ generates a new commitment to your earthly or biological family. But when you look carefully in all those New Testament instructions to households, you realise that actually the commitment to Christ also shapes that new commitment to your earthly or biological family in very particular ways. In short, we're called on to reflect God's love for us in our families through the way we express that. Now, the way we express that will be different for parents and for children. It'll be different for wives and husbands. And you can look up some of those passages and try to explore some of those things or talk about it in question time tomorrow night. But that then brings us to the final stop in our look at Jesus and true family. If we fast forward to the return of Jesus and the glorious new creation, how does this story about family end? Well, point five, on page 40, it ends with glory. The eternal family. Because the Lord's just taken away the microphone. No, it's back again. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's telling me there. So I'll just plough on and pray that the Lord reveals things truly to you by His Spirit. You can judge what I say by the Scriptures. Uh, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is asked a tricky question by some religious leaders involving a woman who was widowed seven times, and they want to know, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Who will she be married to out of the seven people who all died? And Jesus gives his reply, you can see it there. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Jesus gives us several important truths here. First, marriage is an entirely this-world institution. No one will be married in the resurrection age. We will all be gloriously single. 
Even the parent-child relationships seem to fade into the background. Notice how Jesus puts it there in verse 36. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. It seems like the primary fundamental family relationship that we have with God in Christ, that has now finally taken over. Seems like the earthly biological family fades into the background in some way. And so in that new creation, there'll be no more marriage, no more husbands and wives, no more having of children and the making of new humans. The family will be God's family in Christ. God will be our father. We will be his children. Jesus will be the husband and we, the church, will be his bride. That this is the good future that God has purposed for each of us in Jesus, that's more than just sort of interesting because that that is all of our futures in Christ, that gives a dignity and a significance to living the single celibate life now. Three things to say. First, our world tells us that if you are not having sex, then you're not living. Life without sex, they tell us, is a diminished life. It's just not true. Jesus, the truest human, lived the single celibate life. Do you think his life was diminished as a result? No way. The world's lie is that sexual experience is core to human flourishing. That somehow without sexual experience, you cannot live a meaning-filled, joyful life. It's just not true, friends. Jesus in Matthew 19 strongly affirms those who choose singleness because of the kingdom of heaven. It might be because they want to be free to devote more time to God's kingdom, or it might be because male-female fully sexual marriage is not a possibility for them. And so out of respect for God, they choose to live a single celibate life. In both cases... There is a dignity, I mean a God-pleasing rightness to the single celibate life. And second, the single celibate life lived out now in devotion to Jesus in the midst of his people, that is a little picture of the future that we all have. A single celibate life lived out in devotion and love to Jesus in the midst of his people. That's where we're all going. And it's not just that it's a sign of our future, but also it's a picture of how we can live out that sort of single celibate life sustainably, joyfully and richly in the Christian community. What I mean is... You might not have a husband or a wife or kids, but because you're part of God's family, the single life ought not be an isolating or lonely one. With all of our sisters and brothers in Christ, life for the unmarried follower of Jesus ought to be relationally rich. That's certainly how it will be in the resurrection. And we're meant to embody that possibility, that reality now in our life together. And let me say, if your experience as a single, celibate, devoted lover of Jesus is not like that now, if you say, well, you know what, my life is not relationally rich, or if there's people in our churches who are living the celibate, single life in joyful devotion to Jesus, and they say, yeah, but I'm not having a relationally rich experience. You know, you know what? We, the rest of the Christian community, both married and we have to own that failure of ours. And we have to seek to do something about it. Because this is family we're talking about. 
This is God's family, the truest family we have, the family we have for all eternity in Jesus, with whom we will enjoy fellowship and relationship for eternity to come. God has lovingly and graciously adopted us into his family in Jesus. And our new identity in Christ as his children, that ought to generate and shape a new commitment to love our earthly family, yes, but also a new commitment to love all our sisters and brothers in Christ to the glory of God, our true Father, and of his Son, Jesus, our true brother. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus, your Son. Thank you for adopting us as your children into your family and making us heirs of all your promises. Father, strengthen us by your Spirit to love our earthly families as a reflection and expression of your love for us. Grant us patience and forgiveness and grace that we need to love them well. And empower us too, Father, to love one another and all people in a way that reflects your loving character and brings honour and glory to your name. For Jesus' glory and in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus' dying breath has brought us life so that we may be adopted as his children. Let's stand and sing of that great love that we know.